Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today is part two of our story of the Civil War in California. Hope you've enjoyed some of the interviews I've done with Craig Walsh and Eric Nossbaum. I promise you this is not becoming a sports podcast, as both of them were uh, interviews about sports, some tangentially and some directly. Uh, it was just the way the recording schedule went. We'll be back with a more traditional history interview next week. Without further ado, let's get to today's episode and California and the Civil War, Part 2. We left off on the last episode with the rising tide of popular sentiment driven by the rhetoric of Thomas Starr King. We also discussed the changing of command within the Pacific Division of the military. Edwin Sumner, Sidney Johnson's replacement, took control in the spring of 1861. The first thing that was required to evaluate was the military and security situation. His evaluation of the political situation is also quite interesting. He determined that the secessionist contingent represented by mostly Shiv Democrats was more active than the Northern Democratic Party and the burgeoning Republican Party, meaning that California required a security presence to keep it from joining the South and becoming an insurrectionist region. Before we go any further, though, let's talk about who Sumner was, this new leader of the Pacific Division of the U.S. military. Born in Massachusetts, Sumner was educated at Milton Academy. He tried his hand at private industry before enlisting in the military as a second lieutenant. His first major experience of combat was the Black Hawk War. Like many wars with indigenous groups, the conflict centered around land disputes. In 1804, the United States government signed a treaty with a subset of the Sauk and Masaki that ceded land from their ancestral home, which other members of the tribe naturally later disputed. Consequently, members of these tribes were relocated west in advance of U.S. settlers. Twenty-six years after this contentious treaty was signed, a Sauk leader named Black Hawk decided to lead a portion of his brethren back to their traditional lands, moving across the line of the Mississippi River. American settlers, viewing their presence as an essentially declaration of war, called for military intervention from the government. The first major skirmish was between the Illinois militia and the Black Hawks warriors. Apparently, this turned out to be amateur hour for the militia, who were routed by the native warriors. However, later in the war, the U.S. military ended up massacring a large number of those native warriors, but also women and children, in the Battle of the Bad Axe. The bloodshed certainly left an impact on Sumner. He continued to serve in the military, fighting and winning honors for bravery in the Mexican-American War. Probably the most relevant experience that Sumner brought to the position of Pacific Division Commander was commanding Fort Leavenworth in Kansas during the episode that we call Bleeding Kansas. The violence and vehemence of the various sides during the fighting in Kansas for and against the slavery left a large impact on Sumner. One phenomenon that Sumner also likely observed in Kansas may have been the emergence of paramilitary groups. 
These paramilitary groups came in a variety of shapes and types and were beyond the control of traditional military command. And that was likely a worry that he brought with him to California, given the secessionist movements in Los Angeles. Thus, when Sumner was evaluating the political and military landscape of California, he saw the problems of having a divided state. Accordingly, Sumner began to move his forces into the southern part of the state, focusing specifically on Los Angeles, where many of those secessionist contingents were located. However, there were other hotspots of potential secessionist fomentation, including parts of Nevada, as well as Mexico. So Sumner had his hands full. Beyond defensive maneuvers, Sumner was also told to prepare for a potential invasion of Texas through Mexico, which required a lot of preparation as moving troops to the extended deserts and mountain landscape of northern Mexico presented many logistical challenges as well as strategic and tactical challenges. Obviously, this plan never came to fruition as those with more geographical expertise ultimately weighed in and determined that it would be a logistical nightmare to try and move troops from California to Texas through that part of Mexico. That freed Sumner to focus on protection first and then secondarily with raising troops to send east to support the military campaigns located there. Recruiting volunteers to go fight in the east turned out to be not much of a challenge for Sumner. If you remember from our episodes discussing the gold rush, California was a male-dominated environment, with a large portion of those men being of military age. Many young men came west to strike it rich in the gold rush and didn't bring their dependents with them. Of the male population of 380,000 in California, 170,000 or so of those men were of age that a recruiter would have targeted. Accordingly, California was able to bypass some of the negative outcomes of conscription. Many might be familiar with the New York City draft riots that happened in July 1863, with hundreds either killed or wounded, not to mention the property damage and the lynchings that were spread throughout the city. This particular riot was covered in one of Scorsese's least successful, albeit vivid, films, Gangs of New York. It wasn't just New York, though. There were draft riots all across the North, including in Boston, Wisconsin, and Detroit, those being the most notable. Having such a large pool to pull from enabled California to bypass a lot of this violence and conflict around recruiting soldiers for the war. However, just recruiting men was not enough to create an army. Training was also a big factor in producing serviceable recruits for Eastern generals. The training program for soldiers during the Civil War was actually a lot more sophisticated than the casual reader of history might assume. The training manual that was effectively the guide for working with new recruits was called Rifle and Light Infantry Tactics by William J. Hardy. Hardy was born in Georgia and studied at West Point. He served successfully in the Mexican-American War, where he see, received promotions and distinctions for gallantry. After the war, Hardy pursued a military service career. Prodded by Jefferson Davis, Hardy was then tasked with working on an updated military tactics and strategy manual, mainly as a consequence of updated rifle technology. 
In preparation for this podcast, I tried to read through as much as I could of that manual, but it quickly turned into melatonin for me. Essentially, the manual covers things like how to stand, march, hold your gun, to tactics in battle as it relates to columns and their relationships to each other. Beyond learning the mechanics of being a soldier, there's also the need to be able to use more sophisticated rifles. Smoothbore muskets of periods like the Revolutionary War gave way to rifles. While the smoothbore could be loaded faster, they were much less accurate due to way the bullet or ball spinned. The increased accuracy and adherence to older methods of column fighting explains why the war had so many casualties. In any case, soldiers needed to take time to understand how these more accurate and complicated weapons worked. Sumner also didn't need to worry about having enough training officers. Johnston had left Sumner with a sophisticated organization of officers and trainers that enabled him to quickly recruit, train, and send volunteers off to fight in the major theaters of war. One of those officers ultimately become Sumner's replacement as he was called to help fight in the Eastern Theater of War. His replacement was named General George Wright. We'll have more to say about him in a minute. Meanwhile, at this point in California, there was an election, the election of 1861, that could potentially send the state into a death spiral of insurrection or solidify it for the North. As you remember, the shiv wing of the Democratic Party had dominated the political domain in California for more than 10 years at this point, with the open war now expanding across the country. The situation had changed, but it was still uncertain whether the shivs would finally lose their keys to the power of the state. The Republican Party chose to nominate Leland Stanford as their candidate, in spite of the fact that he had just lost the prior election in 1859. Stanford may have had some skills as a businessman, but he certainly was an effective orator, which likely contributed to his lack of success at the ballot box. Nevertheless, with the Democratic Party in California divided as part of the outcome of the duel between Broderick and Terry, Stanford was in a prime position to capitalize, in the same way that Lincoln was elected nationally with the Democratic Party divided between Northern and Southern contingencies. In addition, the California legislature was effectively taken over by Republicans. These results helped to avoid falling into internal dissension and inevitable insurrection in California. The biggest threat to California, however, would not come internally, but externally in the southwestern portion of the United States, a region that Confederate leaders believed may be one of the keys to success in the war. Jefferson Davis, who had a plot to extend slavery west and plotted to build a southern route to aid in that particular project, wanted to expand military operations in the New Mexico domain. Beyond creating more space to house slaves, Davis also thought that they could use the expanded influence to go after the vast gold resources in California. Given that one of the factors that led to victory by the North was their overwhelming resource advantage, Davis was likely correct in seeing California gold as one of the keys to victory. Also, widening the battlefield may have extended the war even further, perhaps straining the patience of northerners who might be weary from casualties and rationing. 
In support of these aims, Confederates began to mobilize troops in Texas. Led by Colonel John Baylor, a battalion of cavalry called the Texas Mounted Rifles moved west into the southwest, a battlefield in the high desert that presented its own unique subset of challenges and obstacles. Given the relative unimportance of forts in this part of the United States, military installations fell like dominoes in quick succession. The Confederates first captured Masilla before Fort Fillmore, which was in close proximity to the former. The ease of capture was belied by the fact that local communities, which if you remember the way that migration patterns moved horizontally or laterally across the United States, were in support of the Southern cause. In addition to that, the settlers living in Arizona had lost faith in the federal government in no small part to the government's inability to contain and control indigenous violence occurring in that part of the United States. And speaking of the inability to control indigenous operations in the United States, I just finished Indigenous Continent by Pekka Hamalainen, a book that I've been slowly plodding through since it came out. Since we're going to be discussing problems that indigenous groups created for the military, it might be helpful to read that book if you're interested in more background on indigenous movements and patterns. Hamelinen has some great sections in the back on relations in the Midwest that can provide some background for you if you'd like to explore them in more depth. Thus, given the military dominance and civilian support, Baylor took it upon himself to establish the Confederate Territory of Arizona only to then immediately run into the problem of the Apache. There's a long history in the United States of indigenous groups playing various Europeans and Americans off of each other. This is particularly true in the early days of colonization, as competing empires sought to use indigenous as tools of conquest. Indigenous groups, in contrast, would then go back and forth between empires to see who would give them the best deal that met their strategic ends at that time. This kind of relationship was common across the continent and employed in particular in this situation with a people called the Apache. Not long after arriving in the Southwest, Confederate troops were inundated with problems of the Apache. The Apache saw the white men were now divided and saw their corresponding opportunity. And that is where we will leave off for now. Next time we will continue our story by looking at the Confederate invasion of New Mexico. We'll see you next time.